Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Now, the guiding principle in the study of Pirkei Avot is that the lessons and the teachings here are not the minimal requirement of the law, but a standard that goes beyond the letter of the law. So the Talmud says if one wants to be a chassid, which means beyond the letter of the law, then study Perkei Avot. Now, in general, it's hard to find a theme because every sage offers some wisdom and it doesn't seem to be any particular order to it. But there is, of course. The first chapter begins with Moshe received the Torah at Sinai and passed it on to Joshua. That tells you that the theme of this chapter is noticing or understanding the godliness as it comes down from heaven to human beings. And so it's a downward process. All the wisdom of this chapter has to do with transmission of godly ideas and godly knowledge from above downward beginning with God himself, speaking to Moses, and then Moses, and so on. The second chapter begins, Rebbe said, what is the right path that a man should choose for himself? In other words, the theme of this chapter is going to be, what can man contribute? How does man elevate himself? So the first chapter is godliness coming down, from above downward. The second chapter is man elevating himself from below upwards. Now, these two directions are, of course, opposites and in some ways incompatible because the person who's good at one might not be so good at the other. So you can have a good student who is not a good teacher. He can receive when it's being passed on to him downward, but he can't do the teaching. He can't pass it on downward. Or... In reverse, he can pass on what he knows, but it's very hard for him to learn anything new. So those who are good at receiving what is given from above may not be so good at giving to those beneath them. And those who are good at giving to others may not be good at receiving because they are really two very different talents. Chapter 3, which we're going to do today. Chapter 3 says, Akavya... Ben Mahalalel said, reflect upon three things and you will not come to sin. Three things. Because if you have only one, like chapter one, God coming down to man, well, that's just one. If you have only chapter two, only man trying to elevate himself to God, well, then you only have that. In order to really be complete, and in order to avoid sin, you have to have three. And that means the ability to combine the first two and create a third reality. And that is to make peace between these two talents. To be able to rise to that which is higher than you and be able to transmit what you have to those who are less than you, beneath you. So that's what chapter three is all about. In general, the number three in Torah represents peace. Because when you have one, you're lonely. 
when you have two, you have conflict. Three means the ability to reconcile the conflict and create peace. But let's take a look at the Mishnah in its simple meaning and then take another look at the deeper meaning. The author of this statement, the sage whom we're going to quote, his name was Akavya, his father's name was Mahalalel. So Akavya, the son of Mahalalel, said, reflect upon three things and you will not come to sin. Know from where you came and to where you are going and before whom you are destined to give an accounting. From where you came, from a putrid drop. The whole um, fertilization process is a very insignificant beginning, humble beginning. Where are you going? To a place of dust, maggots, and worms. The grave is not a very elegant place either. And before whom are you destined to give an accounting? Before the Supreme King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be He. Okay. The simple meaning as it was understood for hundreds of years, almost 2,000 years. Think about these three things and it will keep you from sinning. Think about where you came from, where you're going, and before whom you're going to give an account. Where do you come from? Humble beginnings, a putrid drop, a fertilized drop. Where are you going? To the grave, which is... And before whom do you give an account? Not just before any king or judge, but before the king of kings, the holy one, blessed be he. So that should sober you up. And you should not sin. That's the way the Mishnah was understood. But now let's take a closer look. Bunch of questions. Primary of all questions is, we're not talking about people who sin. This is Pirkei Avos. We're talking about people who have got that worked out. They're trying to go beyond the letter of the law. They don't need advice on how not to sin. For that, there's a rule book. Number two, why this lengthy, verbose expression? Think of three things. These three things are where you come from, where you're going, who you're going to account for. Now, where are you going? Uh, where are you coming from? Who are you going to give an account? What? Just say it. Just say. Think about the fact that you come from a future drop and you're going to the grave and you have to give an account before God and you won't sin. Thirdly, number three, why does the Mishnah tell us think about three things? Just tell us the three things. We can count. So just say, think about where you come from. Think, don't give me the number. I don't... I can count to three. Also, the Mishnah says, if you think about these three things, you won't come lidei aveda. It's not you won't sin. You won't come to the handle of sin. The handle. The grip. Not the sin itself. The handle. What is that supposed to mean? Why that expression? And why is it if you think about these three things, you won't sin? What is it about these three things? Let's take a deeper look. The Mishnah is composed of three parts that can be seen as three separate statements. The first statement is, 
Think about three things, period. End of sentence. The second part is, think about where you came from, where you're going, and before whom you're going to give an account. Period. The third thing is, you come from a putrid drop, you are going to a place of worms and maggots, and you're going to give an account before the king of kings. Three completely separate statements directed or addressed to three different people. We are not talking about somebody who might sin. We're talking about somebody who already has mastered his evil inclination and doesn't sin, but he wants more. He wants to be better, so he learns Perkeavos. So there are three people studying this Mishnah. One is a tzaddik. He's the perfect saint. He has no evil inclination and finds no pleasure in worldly affairs. His pleasure is in godliness. However, he does live in the physical world. And he could have a problem in his holiness, in his godliness. He might be too extreme. He might be too narrow. He might not get the entire picture. To him, the Mishnah says, think about three things. One is not enough. Two is not enough. You have to think about three. What are the three things? God, you, and the world you're in. Because a, a tzaddik could be content just thinking about God. Not good enough. A tzaddik can be content just thinking about himself, his godly soul, and the desires of a godly soul. Not good enough. He has to think about three things. And the third thing is, what are you doing on earth? If you're so holy and so godly, why are you here? So there are three things that a tzaddik must consider. God, himself, and his mission. Because there have been tzaddikim in history who were focused on God and on their soul, but overlooked the mission. And so they were very holy people, very, but they didn't do much for the world because they weren't focused on that. So they served God, loved God, worshipped God, were perfect saints all their life, and then they died. So the Mishnah says, that's not good enough. You have to think about three things, not two. What are these three things? Why doesn't it need to be stated? Well, because it's already been said. The world stands on three things, Torah, prayer, and good deeds. Torah is God. God gave the Torah. Prayer means your soul's nature, your soul's expression. Good deeds means make the world better. You have to have these three things. If you have only two, a table cannot stand on two legs. So you have to have at least three. So that is the Mishnah's advice to the tzaddik who wants to go beyond the letter of the law. Beyond the letter of the law means you have a God, you have a godly soul, you have a great relationship with each other, but go beyond that. 
and do something good for the world. Make the world better. That's why your soul came down to earth. Number two, the Mishnah then addresses the Benini. The Benini is a person who does not sin, but could. He does find pleasure in worldly things, just not in sinful things. So the Mishnah tells him how to elevate himself to a higher level than that, so that he loses interest even in those pleasures that are permissible, like kosher food. Kosher food is permissible. You don't have to eat everything kosher. That's why it's very good that so many products are not kosher, like Twinkies. <laughs> We're better off having them not kosher because just because it's kosher doesn't mean you have to eat it. So the Benini will not be tempted to indulge in that which is forbidden, but he could be tempted to indulge in that which is permissible. So what should the Benini take to heart? What should he contemplate, reflect upon, that will help him lose interest in even the permissible pleasures? So the second part of the Mishnah says, where are you coming from? Where are you going? And before whom will you give an account? Know that your soul came from heaven. It is a godly soul. Know that in the end, where are you going? Towards resurrection. When the body will be resurrected and live forever. And before whom do you give an account? Not just any king, but the king of kings who takes an interest in you. Considering or reflecting on these three things will take away your appetite for foolishness, even kosher foolishness. So, more specifically, Me'ayin Bosa is translated, where do you come from? A deeper meaning is, you come from a place called Ayin which is a very holy source of the soul. So may I in Bosa is not a question. It's a statement. Consider the fact that you come from a very high source. So your soul is not interested in foolishness. Where are you headed? What is your end goal? Your end goal is li'on atahelech. You are going to a place where after the coming of Mashiach and the resurrection of the dead, there will be no interest in physical things, even though the physical will be abundantly available. So then also, the physical will not be interesting or important. And before whom are you going to give an account of what you accomplished in your life? The King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be He, who takes an interest in your accomplishments. That Those three considerations will elevate you above the ordinary, even the permissible. Now these three things, by the way, are past, present, and future. The past is, where does your soul come from? The present is, where are you headed? Where are you headed is not your future. It's what you're doing now. What you're doing now is, you are heading towards the resurrection, or actually contributing towards the resurrection. The future is, who will you give an account for? Who will you report to? 
when you have accomplished what you need to accomplish. Before the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be. Now, the third part of the Mishnah addresses a third kind of person, and that is a person who is sinful. The person who does sin, but he wants to elevate himself. So he's not trying to not sin. He's trying to elevate himself beyond sin. And that's why it's called Yidei Aveja. We're not trying to tell you how not to sin. That you've got to work out yourself. We're trying to tell you if you want to elevate yourself to where you are beyond the handle of the sin. The handle of a, of a thing. You have a hot... What do you need a handle? If you have a hot frying pan, you can't touch the pan. You touch the handle. So the handle means your ability to get close to something that will burn you. So the handle of a sin means the step that leads to the sin, not the sin itself. And we want to get beyond that so that even that step prior to sin will not come into the picture. That's called beyond the letter of the law. What considerations should the sinful type reflect upon? You come from a putrid drop, you will end up in a grave, and you will give an account before the king of kings. I think this is the most revolutionary part of the, of the statement. You come from a putrid drop is not punishment for sin. That's just the way the world is. A human being has very humble beginnings. You will end up in a grave that has worms and maggots. Everybody does. That's not punishment for sin. If you want to tell someone not to sin, well, give them some consequences of sin. Say you'll be tortured, punished, burn in hell. I mean, say something, say something about the price of sin. What the mission is saying is not the price of sin. You're going to give an account before the Holy One, blessed be He? Well, what is that, terrible? A little scary, but... So you see, the Mishnah is not talking about threatening you not to sin. The Mishnah is talking about the person who does not want to sin, but he might. He needs a little help. So what the Mishnah is actually saying is not the price of sin or the punishment for sin. The Mishnah is saying, if you stop and think about these three things, you'll realize that you really don't want to sin. You're not interested. Why? Because it's beneath you. All physical pleasures are just not worth it. Because our whole physical existence, I mean, look at it. It begins miserable, it ends miserable. What are you getting excited about? This is, I guess, a more Hasidic approach where instead of talking about how evil evil is, it speaks of how holy holiness is and indirectly you lose interest in the physical. So raise yourself to where you really belong and the rest will fall away by itself. So what the Mishnah is saying to all three, to the tzaddik, the benani, and the sinner, the Mishnah is basically saying, there's more to you. There's more to you. So where are you going? Why are you going down? Which is expressed in the statement, where are you going? 
Where do you come from? Where are you going? If you consider these three things, where are you going? Why would you go there? It's not for you. So in this way, the Mishnah is basically saying, if you knew how good good is, you wouldn't be interested in the bad. Not you wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be interested. You wouldn't even, you wouldn't even get to the handle because there's nothing in it for you. In a very dramatic statement, Hasidus says that when a Jew sins, there is no fulfillment because his godly soul certainly doesn't enjoy the sin. On the contrary, the godly soul is damaged by the sin, is hurt. The animal soul also doesn't benefit from the sin and gets no satisfaction because even the animal soul recognizes its creator and sinning doesn't do anything for it. So although there's a temptation to sin, it's a fruitless temptation because it doesn't bring satisfaction. In other words, the appetite to sin never gets satisfied. So when a person sins, it's not that some part of him is now content while the godly part is hurt. No part of him is content because sinning doesn't bring any contentment. It doesn't justify or satisfy anything. And I guess the, the philosophical reason for that is satisfaction comes from completing a task, achieving a goal, fulfilling a mission. There is no mission to sin. It is not our task to sin. So when we do sin, what do we have? Nothing. And therefore, sinning can't bring satisfaction. Because what's satisfied? Satisfaction means a goal attained or achieved. It is not a goal to sin. So God created us with a purpose, with a task, with a mission. Anything that helps attain that mission brings satisfaction. Mission completed, mission accomplished. Sin is not part of the mission. And therefore, what's the satisfaction? What, who is satisfied? Nobody. Not even the temptation. And that's why it's called temptation, because that's all it is. It's not an objective, it's not a goal, it's not an achievement. It's just a temptation. And that's why the person who sins can never be content. Sin doesn't bring contentment. So if a person would stop to consider this, the question is not how terrible is the sin? What kind of a punishment and consequence will I have to suffer if I commit this sin? That's not the question. That's not the question. The question is, what is a sin? And what's in it for you? Really, not much. So why would you go there? For what? Towards what end? There is no end. Towards what purpose? There is no purpose. For what satisfaction? There will be no satisfaction.
So we don't need to dwell on how horrible horrible is. It doesn't have to be horrible. It's just useless. It's pointless. There's nothing in you that needs this. And that elevates you above it so that you don't come to the handle of sin. It's not even an issue anymore. And I guess that's why when life sobers us up, we lose interest in all our little foolish escapades. Not because we're frightened, but because we're sober. And when you're sober, there's nothing in it. There's nothing there for you. So I guess if we have one theme that goes through all three, the tzaddik, the benani, and the rasha, the theme is you exist with a mission. Once, once you introduce that idea, sin becomes irrelevant. You're here on a mission. Where do you have time to go off on tangents? Why would you want to go off on a tangent? Somebody once asked me at uh, the Baptist uh, seminary, they asked me, have you read the New Testament? I said, no. And they said, well, shouldn't you? So I said, as a Jew, I have 613 commandments to study and to observe and to practice. I will read anything that helps me do that. But the New Testament won't. So why would I want to read it? In other words, if you're focused and you have a goal and an objective, then everything else becomes uninteresting. And so it's no longer a question of is it a big sin, a little sin, barely a sin, just a little white lie. That, that's not the issue anymore. The issue is I've got, <laughs> I've got an appointment to keep. So what are, you, what, are you, what are you introducing this irrelevant stuff? Irrelevant to my mission, to my purpose, to my task? So it's the increase of light that removes the darkness. As the expression goes, you can't sweep darkness out with a broom. You can't fight darkness. You increase light. That removes the darkness. So instead of wallowing in how horrible the punishment is going to be or how disgusting the sin is or how terrible the consequences are, don't sweep the darkness with a broom. Increase the light. Be more aware of the mission you're on. Everything else will become irrelevant. The author of the Mishnah, Akavya ben Mahalalel, his name kind of represents this idea of the number three that brings together opposing opposite forces and makes peace. Makes peace between heaven and earth. Akavya comes from the word ekev, which means heel. The heel of the foot. Yaakov was called Yaakov because he was born holding on to the heel of his brother. So Akavya means the heel. His father's name is Mahalalel, one who sings God's praises. You see the combination of the lowest of the low and the highest of the high. 
And even in the lesson to the sinful person, the lesson is, you come from a putrid drop and you speak to the King of Kings, the Holy One, blessed be He. <laughs> Highest of the high and the lowest of the low. Early in, uh, in the history of Chabad in, in America, they published a little uh, uh, teaching from the previous Rebbe in which the Rebbe writes that Akavya ben Mahalalil means when a Jew prays, praises God so thoroughly that he feels it in his heel. That even his heels praise God. And some people in the scholarly world were horrified. What is, what is this interpret? What? The man's name was Akavya. What does it got to do with a heel? <laughs> The heel that praises God? What? This is, this is irresponsible. This is, you know, Hasidic uh, fantasy. It is not authentic. And he wrote a letter to uh, one of the Rebbe's magazines, you know, a letter to the editor saying, I'm shocked, I'm horrified, this is, this is playing games with, with, uh, with holy words. So this was addressed, of course, to the previous Rebbe, but the Rebbe was the editor of the magazine, so he answered it. And he said, before you get so upset, if you take a look in the Gemara where it says, concerning Akavya ben Mahalalhil, why was he named Akavya? Because of some association with a heel. Because of something having to do with a heel. So the name, according to the Gemara, is related to the heel. And why was his father called Mahalalel? It wasn't just his name. It was because he excelled in his ability to praise God. and to. So there's nothing new about this. It's just drawing some attention or focusing on these details of the name. But it's already there in the Gemara. This is nothing new. This is the literal meaning of, of the names. So chapter 3 of Pirkei Avos basically has to do with bridging the gaps, bringing together the opposites, making peace where there could be friction. So let's just take a look at the next Mishnah and see how we can continue this theme. Mishnah 2. Rabbi Hanina, the deputy high priest, said, Pray for the welfare of the government, for were it not for the fear of it, men would swallow one another alive. Again, we have the same questions. Were it not for the fear of government, people would be killing each other? Are we talking about someone who's going beyond the letter of the law here? Or we're talking about anarchy. Pray for the welfare of the government. Pray that the government be strong, because without the government, people would be killing each other. This doesn't sound very noble. People who need the government to keep them from killing each other? That's pretty sad. This is not a moral place. Another question is, what is this expression, swallow each other up alive? Why don't you just say kill each other, destroy each other? The lesson here is in terms of how to be a real mensch. This is very important. In the best of circumstances, the most noble, the most moral, the most righteous people in the world 
have a problem. And that is when they see others who don't agree with them, who are not on their level, they try to swallow them up alive. We're not talking about killing anybody. On the contrary, swallowing somebody up alive means you want him to live and to stay alive, but you swallow him up into your life. In order to teach another person, in order to elevate the other person so that he is on par with you, how do you do it? You swallow him up. You absorb him into yourself. You make him your student, your follower, your, your slave, so that he can learn from you and be like you. Here the Mishnah says, that's not acceptable. Of course, if you swallow the other person alive, he will be better, because he'll be like you. But that's just the letter of the law. If you go beyond the letter of the law, it's not enough to make him as good as you. You have to make him as good as you and as independent as you. You can't swallow him up into your life. He has to be as good as you in his life as you are in your life. This is, I mean, husbands and wives, parents and children, in the best of circumstances. You live in my house, you live by my laws. I'm your mother, I'm your father, this is the way you're going to live. That's correct. You're entitled. It is your house. That's not beyond the letter of the law. Beyond the letter of the law is you don't want your kid to behave properly in your house. You want him to grow up and behave properly in his house, which will be his, not yours. So were it not the fear of government, we would all be swallowing each other up alive with the best of intentions. What is the fear of heaven that prevents that? I'm sorry. The fear of government that prevents that. So if you look at the Hebrew, the statement is, pray for the welfare of the kingdom. It doesn't say government. Obviously, kingdom must ultimately refer to God being the king of the world. So it's a continuation on the theme of the previous Mishnah. Before whom are you going to give an account? Who are you responsible to? Not just any king, the king of kings. Now, pray for the welfare of that king. <laughs> because without him, we would swallow each other up alive. What does it mean, the welfare of God, God's welfare. God wants to be part of this world. When he's not, he's not well. <laughs> he's not at peace. Again, the Hebrew says, B'shlema shel malchus. Literally translated, the peace of the king. When is God at peace? When he is present on earth. When he's not present on earth, he's exiled. He's not at peace. So how do we bring ourselves and others not to swallow each other alive? 
by bringing God into this world peacefully. The theme of the third of the third chapter is making peace, making peace between God and the world. If God becomes natural to the world, then we will rise above the letter of the law and we won't swallow each other up alive. If God is in heaven, then we will swallow each other up alive and do it legally. It will be kosher. It will be according to the letter of the law, but not beyond. So in this sense, in this case, going beyond the letter of the law would mean you don't want your child to obey the laws under your authority. You want him to obey the laws under God's authority. So you can't swallow him up. He's got his own relationship with God, independent of you. Even though you're the teacher, you're the sage, you're the parent, you're the master, but everyone has their own relationship with God. So to enforce laws, yeah, swallowing people up is good. Get everybody to be your follower, get everybody to be obedient to you, and you teach them the right way, and everybody will be good but not good enough. So somebody once asked the Rebbe, what exactly is your role? What is a Rebbe? So the Rebbe said, my role is to connect the Jew with God and then get out of the way. <laughs> That's beyond the letter of the law. It's not, my job is to make sure that everybody behaves themselves. No. That would be nice, but that's not your job. Your job is to connect a Jew with his God and then get out of the way. Let's continue a little further. Rabbi Hanina, the son of Tradian, said, if two sit together and no words of Torah are exchanged between them, it is a company of scorners. A company of scorners. I don't know what that means. <laughs> English can be so strange. It's a company of scorners. If you sit and don't talk Torah, then you're a bunch of cynics. And that's not good, as it is written, as it is stated, in the company of scorners, he does not sit. The righteous person. So righteousness is described as not sitting in the company of scorners. What is a company of scorners? Any people sitting together, not discussing Torah. But if two sit together and do exchange words of Torah, the divine presence rests between them. As it is stated, then the God-fearing conversed with one another, and the Lord hearkened and heard, and a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who meditate on his name. From this verse, we learn only that this is true with regard to two people. From where do we learn that even one person who sits and occupies himself with Torah, that the Holy One, blessed be He, sets a reward for him? That we learn from the verse, He sits alone in stillness. Indeed, He takes unto Himself reward. If two people sit and don't discuss Torah, 
then it's a gathering of scorners. Two people sit and study Torah, the divine presence rests between them. What is the theme here? You started off with two and you ended up with three. You have two people, but they discuss Torah, then God comes and joins them, and now you have three. So what does it mean that God joins them? Not just that you have a third party. The two become one. God joins them to each other. And as a result, there is a third presence, and that is the divine presence. So actually, the Torah brings them together, and when they are together, whenever you bring together two, you end up with the number three, not just one and one. So what is the power of Torah? The power of Torah is that it brings unity. If there are no words of Torah, then it's negative energy, because you have two. Whenever you have two, you have negative energy, because you have separation, division, disunity. So what is the Mishnah talking about? Two people sit, and they don't talk words of Torah. What are they doing? It seems like it doesn't matter. Whatever it is they're doing, it's not good. Well, let's say they're studying geography. How bad can that be? It's a gathering of scorners. Why? Because each one scorns the other's opinion. Maybe not blatantly, maybe not in a vulgar manner, but each one has his own opinion that is not necessarily at peace with the other's opinion. Two people, two opinions. So even if they're not arguing or fighting or criticizing each other, they're very much separate entities. Because by nature, every man is an island unto himself. So when you have two, you basically have negativity. Subtle. We're not talking about vile behavior. So you have two people sitting together in pleasant company. But it's not good. Because there, there's division. Two people and they remain separate. But if they study words of Torah, the Torah unites them. And in that union, there is peace. And in that peace, there is a divine presence. One more. Rabbi Shimon says, Three who ate at one table and did not speak words of Torah, it is as if they had eaten of sacrifices to the dead, or sacrifices to idols that are dead. For it is said, indeed, all tables are full of filth. There is no mention of God. But those who ate on one table and did speak words of Torah, it is as if they had eaten from the table of God. For it is stated, and he said to me, this is the table which is before the Lord. What does this add to the previous Mishnah? Three who ate at one table. What about two who ate at a table? What is number three? Three who ate at the same table and did not discuss Torah it's as if they ate from the sacrifices to the idols. If they did speak words of Torah, it's as if they ate from God's food. Here the mission is saying something else. The people themselves are three. 
not two. So they have achieved peace, but they're eating. What value, what quality does the food have? So if they eat and they don't speak words of Torah, then the food they're eating is dead. They are alive because they're three. They follow the advice of the previous Mishnah. So they do speak words of Torah. But in the meal, they don't. In other words, they're not bringing the godliness down to the food they're eating. So the food they're eating is left out. It's dead. If they do speak words of Torah, then it's not that they will be united. They've already done that. They're three. What's going to happen is the food, the table, will become godly. Because godliness permeates even things that don't have a soul. So even the food or the table will become godly if you speak words of Torah. So now you're making peace between the human being and the physical world that even the food you eat becomes holy. So basically, the third chapter of Pirkei Ovos is about three. You, me, and unity. High, low, and the objective of both. The common cause that brings them together. So it's like saying, God wants to be on earth and my soul wants to make God happy. Therefore, we're both interested in what happens on earth.